Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Today we begin a new series that we're simply calling The Church His Glory, The Church His Glory, through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Some have affectionately referred to the book of Ephesians as the gospel of the church, the gospel about the church, the good news about the church. And uh, it is certainly that. The church is center stage in the book of Ephesians. And I trust that over time we shall uh, see that and enjoy that. Ephesians is uh, enormously rich, helpful, uh, encouraging, and instructive. So we will consider this book together. I note, uh, for those of you scoring at home, I've been your pastor for 16 and a half years. I've never preached through the book of Ephesians. Uh, There are several books in the New Testament that I have not preached through. This is one of them. And uh, I have looked forward to this and uh, look forward to unpacking it. We're just going to consider today two verses, chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. And you'll say, at that rate, we'll be here We'll be old as Methuselah, who, by the way, was 969 years old when he died. Uh, The answer is you're not going to make it to 969, so neither am I. Uh, We're not going to take such small pieces uh, going forward. We'll take bigger pieces. Uh, There is uh, good news and bad news about that. The good news is that we won't be in Ephesians till you're old as Methuselah. The bad news is that you have to read a lot and understand Uh, the big picture, and I try to get all of that in uh, to the time allotted. And as you know, sometimes I struggle with that. And uh, I want to do better, and I want you to understand this book and love it as God intends. But this morning, we're just going to read two verses. They will seem somewhat familiar, uh, and they are, but they will also, I trust, be helpful for our hearts. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to mention two things this morning as we read these very familiar words, and these will, I, I trust, be uh, empowering to our Christian lives together. The first I want you to note is found there in verse 1, and that is that the Bible is authoritative. I want you to note, first of all, that Paul begins with the authority of the Bible. Now, you might say, well, the Bible's not even mentioned there. How do you get that? Well, the answer, of course, uh, is in the details. Let me show you a couple of things that stand out in the opening phrase. Paul begins this letter like he begins every one of his letters. From the beginning, he identifies that he is the author, Paul, and he describes his responsibility. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, you need to think for a moment with me about two words there. Uh, The first is the word apostle, and the second is the word will. Those two words will help us to think rightly about all that Paul intends for us to understand. First of all, the word apostle comes from a word that means one who is sent. A close analogy would be the word ambassador. An ambassador has no authority except is delegated to him by his sending authority. So if we have an ambassador to a country, uh, that ambassador has no authority except as as is given to him by the authority of the country. So an ambassador represents one. He has been sent by one. The only reason he's there is because somebody who is over him, bigger than him, more strong, more powerful, more authoritative than him, has empowered him to go and to speak certain words or do certain things or to express certain opinions or reactions and so forth. He is not his own man. An ambassador has no authority except as been delegated. That's the context for the word apostle. An apostle has no authority of himself, in himself. 
He is one who is sent, and he bears the authority of the one sending him. So in this case, he uses a word that's very familiar to us, since we've spent the summer considering the twelve, the disciples, or apostles. We know that in the New Testament, an apostle is a person who has been sent by God, but he has other credentials. You might say, we prayed for Stuart and Ashley this morning. They are sent. Could we call them apostles? In the biblical sense, no. No. Don't use that word in reference to folks around here. That's not, a, that's not the way the Bible uses that word. There were 12 apostles. One uh, was the son of destruction. He was replaced by another one. So there was back to 12. The Bible uses the term apostle as regards the apostle Paul. So there is apostleship for the apostle Paul. We could uh, tease that out. There might be a reference to Apollos as an apostle and others likewise, but we'll leave that for another day. But what we do know here is that when the Bible uses the word apostle, it's talking about a person who meets two primary criteria. One, somebody who has seen Jesus firsthand. That means we've seen him in the flesh. We have touched him. We have listened to him speak We've been in his company, seen Jesus firsthand. You might say, well, there's no record of the Apostle Paul seeing Jesus firsthand. Well, I would suggest it's, it, it perhaps is a nuanced seeing of Jesus, but we shall show you that momentarily. And secondly, a person who has been sent or commissioned by Jesus personally. So he's been in the company of Jesus, and he's been sent by Jesus, by words of Jesus. Jesus said over his life, you go in my name. So that leaves all of us out. We have, we have not seen Jesus in the flesh, nor have we heard from his very voice this commissioning. We are not apostles. There is a, another criteria we shall see in a moment. Now, I want you to note, as the apostle begins this letter, that this is standard fare for Paul. He mentions his call as an apostle three times in the book of Acts. I want to show you this. If you'll uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, just briefly, moisten your fingers, because we're going to go to the end of the book shortly. You'll note Acts chapter 9 is the conversion experience of the apostle Paul. And uh, you'll note that Paul is here, and he encounters Jesus. Uh, verse 3, 9 chapter 3, 9 verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, the balance of chapter 9 is the record of Paul going into the city of Damascus, and there is a, a kind of an elaborate experience there that's uh, unparalleled. He recounts this story, the apostle does, years later as he is on his missionary journeys. Look at Acts chapter 22, Acts 22. Verse 6, well, we'll start in verse 3, actually. Paul, speaking in defense before the Jewish people, says this of his testimony. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. By the way, Gamaliel would be the high-ranking rabbi of his day. So if you think about somebody who's a bit of a guru in uh, whatever field you want to think about, Gamaliel would be the ranking rabbi in terms of teaching the pharisaical view of, of God and the law. So basically Paul is saying, I had an Ivy League education. I have an unparalleled education. According 
he says, to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. In other words, I didn't do any of this in a vacuum, and the very people who sent me to do these things are standing right here. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, drew near to Damascus about noon. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So here you have Acts chapter 9, the actual experience. Acts 22, the record of the experience. He does it again. Acts 26, this time he's standing before King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, who is the grandson of the great Herod the Great. And he gets to offer a defense. You'll notice in verse 2 of Acts 26, he speaks before Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. You'll note the ESV translation, which I read from, supplies an exclamation point. Now, in, in the language of the Bible, there is no punctuation. But the translators supply this punctuation because this is an incredible statement, and he's offering it as an incredible statement. He said, I'm on trial for believing in the hope of the resurrection. Can you believe that? I mean, come on. Can you really believe that? I'm on trial for believing that there is life after death, that God has conquered death, and that God is stronger than death. I'm, I'm, I'm on trial for the most ridiculous charge. Everybody believes this. The Pharisees do. The Sadducees didn't. But the Pharisees strongly held to the resurrection. I'm on trial for believing the resurrection. It's incredible. So he comes, verse 8, and asks this question, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Is there a rock too big for God to lift? Silly question. But the answer is no. Is there a life that is so dead that God can't raise it? The answer is no. Let me just give you one little reminder. The Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that Jesus is transfigured, his flesh is shining white, and can't, can't even make out his features. Because of the bright light, there appears two men there on the mountain of transfiguration. Two men who've been dead for centuries. Moses, Elijah, dead for centuries. Now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then you tell me why Moses and Elijah show up in the first century. And the answer is because they're not dead. And neither are your loved ones who have gone on with the Lord. And neither is the Lord. And it's by virtue of the life of Jesus that your loved ones and my loved ones are yet still alive. And any suggestion to the contrary does not understand the power of God to raise the dead. Verse 9, Acts 26, the apostle defending himself. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and uh, commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. In other words, this man has an encounter with Jesus and he keeps talking about it. Every chance he gets to tell his story, he tells this story. And you would too, if that was your story, you would tell this story. So he stands before the Ephesians, or he writes before the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 1, and says, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. Why does that matter? Because that means he's different than the Ephesians. He's different than me. He's different than you. He's different than your friends. He's different than your neighbors. He's different because he's been with Jesus. And he's been given a commission from Jesus. I want you to note here in Acts 26, before we leave, it, uh, leave this, uh, this, you note he gets the commission, verse 16. He says, but rise, Jesus tells him, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Think of that. I'm commissioning you. I'm giving you this task. Just as he gave this commission to the 12, he now gives it to the 13th. The Apostle Paul, he, is, he has credentials that the rest of us do not have. Thanks be to God. He writes to the Ephesians as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The will of God. Now that, that word also challenges us because uh, we think all wills are the same. If I might suggest an explanation for that. That is to suggest that, that your will is the same as mine, my will is the same as yours. We would agree. We are, we are peers. We, we, we have the limits of humanity. We can only do so much. We can't, we can't grab things out of the air. We can't conjure up truth or, or change things that we wish we could change. Uh, we don't have unlimited power. We don't have unlimited wisdom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We know that human will has limits. But when the Bible talks about the will of God, the Bible does not mean that the will of God is like the will of man, that the will of God has limits or limitations or weakness or deficiencies. Remember, the Bible says that God, out of nothing, spoke the world into existence. The Bible takes Jesus dead and raises him from the dead by the will of God. And on and on we could go. You understand that when the Bible talks about the will of God, the Bible is not talking about the will of man. The implications are totally different. That's why as a church, we want to find and follow the will of God. We're not going to moisten our finger and stick in the air and find out which way the wind is blowing and go that way. We're not going to follow human opinion. We're not merely going to take the, the, the pooled opinions of people and say, that's the will of God. We're not going to do that. We can't do that. That's dangerous. That's weak. And that can be deadly. Not only to our souls, but to the souls of others that God has commissioned us to tell about Him and His grace. 
Instead, we want to discern the will of God. What is the will of God? Because the will of God is right and true. The will of God is strong and powerful and commands his blessing. The will of God is, is, is safe. There is no place safer than the will of God. Now, understand, when the Bible uses the word safe, when I use the word safe, I don't mean by that that there are not going to be physical or earthly harms that come our way. People will experience sorrow and suffering, even ultimate sorrow in this life, in the will of God. History is replete with people, beginning with Jesus Christ, who have died for their commitment to the will and way of God. The notion that somehow the will of God is destined to keep me safe until I'm 100 years old and I can die in my recliner is just not biblical. And it's not reality. Has God lied to us? Of course not. The reality is God has called us to follow him and that his will is strong to accomplish his will. And his will for my life so far has to live this long. But other righteous people have lived shorter lives, and other righteous people have lived longer lives, and other righteous people have experienced more suffering, and other righteous people have experienced less suffering, and other righteous people have had any number of other experiences, and yet God is the same in all our lives. So if we want to suggest that the will of God is the will of man, we make a profound mistake, and we cheat ourselves for seeing the glory of God. God is so strong and so powerful, so glorious that he can take what the world connotes as a tragedy and he can bring about a great renewal. He can do things with tragedy that we cannot see, that we cannot control, that we cannot command. So the will of God is what charges Paul to be an apostle. It's the will of God for Paul's life. Meaning, therefore, that everything that Paul's about to write has authority. So we see here, beginning from verse 1, that Ephesians carries with it the apostleship of Paul commanded by the will of God. So what we read in these pages is not merely the opinions of a man. Don't let anybody dupe you into somehow believing that the Apostle Paul is just like all the rest of us. He's just a guy. He's got these kinds of issues or these kinds of issues, and somebody want to do psychoanalysis on Paul and find out why he's this or he said that and whatever. And invariably, all of that does is it mocks the apostleship of Paul. Listen, if there's any church Who knows that the, the apostles are just regular guys. It ought to be this one. We just spent the whole summer talking about it. It's just a bunch of guys. But when the Holy Spirit fell on those men, they changed. God moved in their lives. God took their lives, and he used them in ways that are miraculous, that, that can't be explained. He does that with the apostle Paul. That's why Paul keeps telling his story. Listen, I was that... I was that. I'm going to show you again his story in 2 Corinthians 12 momentarily. I, I was that. That is antithetical to God. But God took that guy whose life was a complete spiritual train wreck. Paul wouldn't have used that term, nor would he use the next one I'm going to use. His life was a dumpster fire for God. Even though he looked it, talked it, acted it, and was regarded by his culture as being polished for God. Jesus called him out on the road to Damascus and said, you're wrong. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand any of this. But we're going to change you and we're going to use you, Paul, to change the world. And you don't know this, Paul, but I'm going to work in your life in such a way 
that you're going to write letters. You're going to write letters to people, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and to churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, etc. You're going to write letters, and I'm going to so infuse you with the Holy Spirit that you're going to write letters that are going to have the gravity of Scripture, the Holy Word of God. So what we read in the book of Ephesians is not merely a handbook or a road map or any other human analogy that we use to describe how-to manuals. Instead, this is the word of Almighty God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I've been with Christ. Christ has told me to tell you this. And everything I'm telling you is the word of God. So I want to encourage you today to understand that the will of God for your life is to hear his word and to believe his word and to build your life against the word of God. That is to say, against the stackpole of the word of God and know that one day you'll be judged by these very words because these words are the will of God. The first thing we note in the book of Ephesians is the authority of the Bible. The second thing we note in this passage, again, just two verses, is the glory of the church in Christ. The glory of the church in Christ. I want to show you that. If you look here at the second phrase in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. A couple of important words here. First of all, he describes them as saints. Saints. Again, that's a word that maybe in Baptist circles we don't use a whole lot. I don't usually go around and see somebody named Jim. Hey, St. Jim or Tom. Hey, St. Tom. I don't, I don't usually use that language. In fact, I never use that language. And since I've been hanging out with you folks, I've noticed that y'all don't use that language. So that's not terminology that we are conversant with, and yet that's the terminology that's used here. Now, the word saint just means set apart ones. It means folks who have consecrated for a special purpose. Uh, my favorite analogy is always the difference between fine china and everyday dinnerware right? I grew up, my mother never had fine china. Uh, she raised four boys. What's the point? I mean, it's not a good idea. And uh, she knew it. And uh, when they got married, there was, no, there was no need for that, no money for that, no, no desire for that. So, so I, I didn't know there was any other kind of dishes until I got married, and, and then we registered for china. And I've been packing and repacking that for generations, and, uh, but it's, it's beautiful. What's left of it? <laughs> uh, a friend of mine years ago said, three moves is the equivalent of one fire. Uh, so, you know, you move, you break stuff. You move, you break stuff. You move, break stuff. It's about the equivalent of one fire. You just, you know, you just lose stuff. Well, China. The difference between everyday dishes and China. Well, you think about what it means to be set apart. There are certain things that are everyday, common, and there are certain things that are set apart. That's the good stuff. That's mom's stuff or grandmom's stuff or great-grandmother's stuff. It's set apart. It's sacred. It's, it, it, it's, got, it's got mojo attached to it. It matters. We all understand that. That's what he means by sanctified. You are holy. You are set apart unto God. Not, not set apart for worldly acclaim, but set apart for the purposes of God, set apart for the majesty of God, set apart for the purposes of God in your life and in the life of others. So that's what he means when he says here that you are the saints. You're the ones that God has set apart. You'll note 
that he addresses this to the church in Ephesus. Now, I recognize there are some ancient manuscripts that don't even have that phrase in Ephesus. We could argue about that till the cows come home. We won't get anywhere. We won't solve anything. It's a worthless argument. I'm not going to get into that. I will tell you, I think this letter was addressed to the Ephesians, and it probably went beyond the Ephesians, but nonetheless, it started there. So I'm fine with that. Hope you are. But note, he, he writes this to a local church. But to whomever he wrote it, if it was not Ephesus and some would say it wasn't. It was to people in ancient Asia Minor. It was to a church in what today is called the country of Turkey. You can, you can visit the ruins of Ephesus on the southwestern coast of Turkey. You can go there and you can see the ruins of the, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. You can go and see that, those ruins. You can see the great amphitheater there and the great, the, the great uh, temples that, that characterized the city and the ancient ruins and so forth. Ephesus is one of the great cities of the ancient Roman Empire, either the third probably or fourth maybe largest city in the ancient Roman Empire. This is a fabulous place, big city, lots of comings and goings. Lots of crossroads, economic crossroads, cultural crossroads, uh, people coming from all over the Western world came to Ephesus. There's a reason why the Temple of Diana was such an enormous structure. What does that mean to you and me? Well, that means that the people who made up the church in Ephesus were not all the same kind of people. Because if you plant a church in a cosmopolitan environment, you end up with some of those and some of those and some of those and some of those and some of those. They're not all the same skin. They're not all the same language. They don't all eat the same food. They don't all have the same history. They don't all have the same regard for religious customs. They're different. They're different. And in the midst of all of that, God intends that his son would be elevated. In the midst of all these reasons to disagree or polarize or run to our closets and have our little holy huddles about our little opinions about X or Y or Z because you've got all these different kinds of people. He intends somehow for our universal faith, our confident faith, our common confidence in Christ to bring us all together. What happens is that when you put saints in a room, little stuff stays little. And there's only room for the big stuff. Little stuff matters, right? Little stuff. It matters. I, I have history. You have history. We all have factors, cultural pressures, if you will. We all have things in our hearts and minds that we enjoy, or we would, or we could, whatever. I was thinking about it this morning. I'm a huge fan of small churches. So you might say, well, what in the world are you doing here? Well, there, every now and then I ask myself that question, but that's not the point. The point is, I'm a huge fan of small churches because in small churches, certain things happen. You know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody keeps up with everybody. Everybody which can be bad, by the way. Uh, but, but everybody keeps up with everybody, and, and everybody understands that it's, it's not rocket science. We're not trying to dazzle. We're not trying to impress. We're not, we're not trying to put on a show. N none of those things. You say, well, we're not doing that in Morrison Heights either. I hope not. We certainly don't intend to. We certainly aren't working hard at that. That's not our objective. But 
In a small church, nobody, there's, there's just no pretense about that. It's just, it's just good old folks. It's just, it's just, and I, I just, I just love that. But you know, I love the will of God for my life more than I love anything. I can't imagine being out of step with God. And being a part of this congregation, being a part of what this congregation can do and is doing, is, I think, a righteous thing. And I think that God has me in this church and you in this church so that we might contribute to accomplishing these righteous things. Because this big umbrella, this big righteous thing, this elevating the glory of Christ and being a witness and a light in a dark world, it it is being done here in ways that, that I have never experienced before. And I'm grateful to God for that. So though my affection can be rooted in that small church where everybody knows everybody and everybody keeps up with everybody and so forth and so on, my, my great understanding of the will of God for my life and the will of God for our church is that, that we can do so much more through this context, through this church, which is not a small church. I rejoice in that, and I thank God for that, and I keep my eyes lifted into that big vision, that big picture. I want you to do the same. This is the point of the apostle. He's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus. It's either the third or the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. He's writing to a church not in the pine trees somewhere, He's writing to a church in one of the great world cities. He's writing to a church that says, you guys need to understand what's in play, what's at stake, what God intends for you. He intends for you to be his, set apart unto him in the midst of all the noise and the voices and the competing cultural pressures that exist in the large context. In the midst of all of that, understand, God has set you apart for himself. You are to be different. You are to be special. You are to be peculiar. Not so that you be arrogant. Not so that you be cocky. Not so you think so much of yourself because we are this or that or whatever. No, but on the contrary, because our God is great and he intends for you to be in this strategic outpost. This world-class city needs a world-class church. So what the Apostle Paul is going to write in the next six chapters, the stakes couldn't be higher. I think about today in our culture. What does God intend for his people today in our culture? No less than that, seems to me. We happen to be a church in the United States Do you know there is a a stereotype outside of the United States of what the church is inside the United States? If you're a Christian and you travel overseas and you say, well, I'm from America, there's a stereotype that they're dealing with in their mind. You're not, but they're dealing with it. They think, depending on who you talk to, they think you're rich because you're from America. They think you're sloppy because they watch sitcoms on satellite television and they think that's the way people live. Turns out many people do live that way, but not the people of God. They think that the stereotypes of propaganda in their own culture are true about America and ultimately about American Christianity. I read this opening phrase in Ephesians 1.1 and the apostle writes to the saints who are in a world-class environment and he reminds them and he's about to remind them over six chapters that you are not to be like the world. That God rescued you from the world. God saved you from the world. God saved you from the condemnation 
that the world justly deserves. And instead, you are to be the set-apart ones. You are the holy ones. You're the saints. The saints. That's not unimportant. Let me show you an aspect of that quickly in Colossians 1. Just turn two books back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 24. The apostle speaks of himself, describes the work of God. And this helps us to think rightly about what's going on. I rejoice, he says in verse 24, in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to his saints. Now there's that word, to his saints. God intends that a mystery formerly hidden, now revealed, be revealed to his saints. So what's going on in Colossians is what's going on in Ephesians, which is also what's going on in Romans, and it's going on in 1 Corinthians, and it's going on in Philippians, and so forth. It's going on because the Apostle Paul is going door to door, town to town, city to city, writing letter after letter after letter after letter that are now included in our scriptures in order that we might know this, that there is a mystery hidden for ages, but it's now revealed to his saints. To them, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here it is. Do you see that? Do you see that phrase? Here's the mystery. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the mystery. Let me phrase it another way and conclude. Most people, when they read the Bible, they know the Bible's divided into two testaments, old and new. They read the Old Testament and they say, you know, I don't really understand what that's all about. You know, it's a history of God dealing with the Jews and the history of all these rituals and sacrifices and offerings and temple and priests and all that. I read all that. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm a Gentile. You know, I'm a, in, in our case, in our context, we, we are not Jews. So we read all that Jewish material in the Old Testament, and we think, that's really got nothing to do with me. Well, in a sense, you're right. It does have nothing to do with you. But in another sense, you're completely wrong. Let me explain it another way. The Bible seems to be a book about God and the Jews. But in reality, it's a book about God and his people. Now, in the Old Testament, it's God and his people, the Jews. But God sends his son, and the coming of his son, God intends for his people to expand. God intends for his people to be the church. So the New Testament is not about the Jews. It is about the church. And the church is made up of Jews and everyone else, the nations. The word Gentile just means nations. So it's the Jews and everybody else, all the other nations in the world, more than 200 of them uh, currently. It's the Jews plus all these other people. So the glory of God is not just about what God wants to do in a piece of dirt in the Middle East, but rather what God intends to do around the world. And so the apostle says in Colossians, what he's already said in Ephesians, is what he's going to say it again and again, is that God intends for the church to be made up of his holy ones, his saints. Now, who are the saints in the Old Testament? The saints in the Old Testament are all Jews. They're all Jewish people. Now, there's an outlier who's, who's not Jewish. Think of Ruth, a Moabite, etc. They're outliers. But for the most part, the saints in the Old Testament are Jews. But in the New Testament, the saints 
that he's addressing here are people in Ephesus, which includes Jews, but it's a world-class city, and there's all kinds of non-Jews. There's all kinds of people that make up the church. Colossae, also in Ephesus, etc. All these cities that, that, are, that are addressed here, Rome, Corinth, all these world-class cities, they're, these churches, and they're made up of non-Jews. How did this happen? What is really going on here? Well, he's, his point is God is unveiling something that heretofore has been true but hidden. True but hidden. It's sort of like a Christmas present, right? I, I, I don't know if y'all ever committed these kind of crimes, but your parents would buy your Christmas presents before Christmas, and they would hide them, except you knew where they hid them, and you went and found them and looked at them and imagined the great joy you were going to have in enjoying this Christmas present. And we, we had kids, and one of our daughters, who will remain nameless to save her reputation, she just, oh, it was, it was more than she can do to know that in that closet were the Christmas presents. And I can't go in there. I just can't go in there. It's, 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 it's just off limits. I better not be caught there. Now that she's an adult, she's confessed that many times she did go in there. <laughs> all right. So we're all familiar with the fact that, that certain things are true, but they're hidden until the appropriate time. Why did God send Paul into the world? He's told us three times in the book of Acts alone. He sent Paul into the world so that Paul could take the gospel outside the Jewish context. So that churches like Rome, churches like Corinth, churches like Ephesus, great cities with these cosmopolitan environments could have a church full of saints. Saints used to be Jews, and now they're Jews plus, plus, plus. This is the glory of Christ. That's the point that he's making in Colossians. That's the point that he's making in Ephesians. That's the point that he's making today. Thanks be to God, there is no one, by virtue of their culture, by virtue of their race or ethnic background, by virtue of their language, by virtue of their non-religious training or any other earthly reason, there is no person who is excluded from the glory of Christ. We can share the glory of Christ, celebrate the glory of Christ, invite them to respond to the glory of Christ because the glory of Christ is in the church. Who needs to make up the church? The saints. And who are the saints? The ones that heretofore didn't think they were in, but now they hear good news. It's for you too. It's for you too. And it's not only for you, it's for everyone else. The notion of the Old Testament is that God is a God who judges and judges and judges and judges. And against that dark, dark, dark news, Jesus comes on the air. Jesus comes on the earth in order to proclaim good news, a light has come on the earth. Dawn has broken. And those who are in darkness have now seen a great light. Jesus has come in order that Christ might be made known to the saints. The saints who are not simply the saints of the Old Testament in the midst of that hard-hitting judgment of God, constant failure and that cycle of rebellion and destruction and rebellion and destruction and rebellion and destruction that we read in the Old Testament. But here in the New Testament, God writes to these churches and says, I want you to know in the fullness of time, God sent his son and he sent the son so that God might assemble his people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and that we might be the church. It is a glorious thing to be a part of a church. It's not because this church scratches my every itch or yours, but it's because Jesus intends. that we do all things 
in His name. That we relate to one another in His name. And we tear down all the earthly barriers. And then we don't join in all the earthly noise. Instead, we simply say, can we get back to Jesus? The choir sung about it this morning. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he lovely? Yes. See, my job every Sunday is to somehow come in here and remind you what you already know. That the greatest thing in all the world that God could do for you, He's already done. And my job is to remind you to keep looking at Him because He is beautiful. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. We deserve rejection. But God is merciful beyond measure. And He's brought His great light in the midst of our great darkness that we might see His Son and be made holy. Thanks be to God for His Son, our Savior, His glory. May it always be so. Pray with me. Father, thank You this morning for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Almighty God, who laid aside His glory and came that we might see His beauty, that we might recognize His love, and we might respond. And by virtue of responding, be counted faithful, be counted holy, and to be a part of a great church, a church local right here on Hampstead Boulevard in Clinton, Mississippi, and a church worldwide that includes people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Even this morning, people in Afghanistan who fear for their very lives are our brothers and sisters. We'll never meet them in this life, perhaps. But they're our brothers and sisters. God is doing a miracle. He's bringing together people who have nothing in common and giving them one thing in common. And that one thing changes everything. Give us grace to believe. It's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.